great German poet <clears throat> Goethe once wrote this. It was roughly around the time of Thomas Jefferson. If you treat a man as he is, he will stay as he is. But if you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and could be, he will become the bigger and better man. Now, there's an enormous amount of insight in that for us with our friends, with our kids, even with our parents, with husbands and with wives, church member with church member, church member with elder. If you treat a person as he is, he will stay as he is. But if you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and could be, he will become the bigger and better person. I would like to submit to you that Goethe got it from the Apostle Paul, whether he knew it or not. In the opening greeting of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote this, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been made holy, past tense, an accomplished thing. The holy ones set apart or the holy ones by calling. That's how the Apostle Paul thought of the Corinthians. And yet, just two short chapters into this letter, beginning in chapter 3, Paul writes this, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, but as toddlers in Christ. Now, if you are here this morning in diapers in Christ, that is spiritually immature in certain key places in what God is calling you to be and to do as a believer for the sake of the church and for the lost world around us, then you need to ask yourself, is that where I want to stay for the foreseeable future? Now, maybe you've grown past the diaper stage, but nobody is what we ought to be in terms of maturity. Staying in diapers or staying a spiritual teenager should not be where you want to stay, but you might very well feel safe in that place, like Peter Pan, who didn't want to grow up. He just kept majoring on fun in his life. Paul is just applying to the immature church at Corinth a principle that Goethe so many centuries later had put his finger on because in the congregation in Corinth there is bickering, there is jealousy, there is conflict, rivalry, there is intellectual arrogance, there's divisions in the fellowship and one guy is shacking up with his stepmother. Nobody seemed to care. Bad stuff, in other words. But this is how Paul tackles it. He confronts these believers with love, but it's love with a kind of sharpened edge for some surgical work. And so Paul says to them, in effect, I define you, I think of you 
not as you are acting, but as what Christ has already made you. And that's what I'm calling you up to right now, even though you're acting like the diapered, like toddlers. Christ has already made you holy before the face of God. That's why he writes to them as those who have been sanctified, those who have been made holy, who are called to be the holy ones. Christ has made us perfect before the face of God. He endured on the cross the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve. He saved you by his grace, filling his love with power. It's profound. And it's your life, the life that God has made holy. And so now the great challenge in the New Testament is, is if you have bowed before Christ, that is your standing, that's who you are. Now start rising to the occasion. Start rising to the holy living that God calls you to live out in every sphere of your life. Now, friends, that's Christian love, and it's also Christian hope at work. Christian optimism about another believer in Jesus Christ. And that's the way we are to challenge with gentleness other believers who are acting immaturely. And we ought to be doing this back and forth because it's certainly true that no one has the maturity that they ought to have. You say, in essence, you say with humility, grow up. Because I know who you are. And you are better than that by God's grace. So get a grip and grow up into the holy man or the holy woman or the holy kid that the work of Christ has made you because your God and Father is calling you to something far higher than what you're living out right now. So we're coming back to our series on 1 Corinthians. I think actually the last sermon on this was July 3rd which was a long time ago. Uh, I promise we're not going to start back at chapter 1. But we are in chapter 6. You will find the text on an insert in your bulletin. There's three things here to see and to go deep with. And the first is this, that love in the church is to be radical in the way that we live it out as Christians. It's to be radical. The second thing is that love in the church is to be radical because the church is the cutting edge of the kingdom of God in the world, and it will inherit one day the fullness of the kingdom, and the kingdom itself is radical. And then thirdly, there's this, that when we live out love in the church in a radical way, we benefit ourselves, we benefit the other believers in Jesus Christ that we must confront, 
or that we must help when we love and live radically, but most importantly, the honor of Christ and his kingdom, they benefit by being promoted in a world that is lost and confused. And the power and the glory of the kingdom get promoted when the people around us see at least something of its splendor. And that's why Paul is so concerned that the people of God, the church, that they live differently, that they walk to the beat of a different drum, Christ's drum. Well, let's look at this first one. Love in the church is to be radical in the way we live it out. Before we get to the particular part of that that's relevant here in the text, let's just fill it out a little bit as we think of the other parts of the New Testament. If you comb the New Testament, you find that love is to be lived out radically, first of all, in not hating your enemies. You can find that clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. You can find it clearly at the end of Paul's teaching in Romans 12. We are not to hate our enemies, but to bless them and to do it for Christ's sake. Secondly, love in the church is to be lived out in a radical way, in living submissively, but also cleverly under those over you in the workplace who are unfair or Unjust, and that also is to be done for Christ's sake. Thirdly, love is to be lived out radically in showing greater deference to those people in the church who are at weak and marginalized places in their lives, showing greater deference to them than to those who are at stronger places. We'll come to that. It's right here in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, it's all for Christ's sake. But here is the fourth thing. Love in the church is to be radical in the way that we live it out. Toward trusted Christians who betray you. And that, too, is to be done for Jesus' sake. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another... Now, notice, notice the intensity of Paul's frustration here. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The saints are Christians. The unrighteous are pagans, those who have not bowed before Christ. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? 
to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The rest of the section here we will get to. It's kind of a warning to these believers, but um, we'll stop there for now because these first eight verses are the verses that I want to focus on. So let's ask the Lord to give us ears to hear, shall we? Oh, Lord in heaven, do, do give us ears to hear these things, these exhortations of Paul seem so outrageously unrealistic. We do pray for mercy and for grace. This is an inspired apostle. Oh Lord, humble us, we pray, because these things are for us. Help us to know what they mean. Help us to be willing to wrestle with them in concrete circumstances. And so come, Spirit of God, and teach us, we pray. Amen. Love in the church is to be radical in the way that we live it out, according to the Apostle Paul, because it would actually be better, he says, to be defrauded of money that a believer took from you in some Ponzi scheme or in some way, rather than to drag him or her into a Roman court in Corinth, thereby allowing the unbelieving world to see the torn fabric of the seamless fabric of the one body of Christ that the church actually is. Letting the trickster keep your money, Paul says, would be better than that scandal. And so he says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, how many of us would just instinctively and strongly feel, I would rather lose the money than people finding out that somebody in my congregation was unfair to me and I sued him in civil court. It's remarkably radical. Now, care needs to be taken here as we apply this. Paul had been informed, we may presume, of the details of the case, and the details of the case may well be relevant. We know nothing of them. But it's very possible that this was a relatively small amount of money. Fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks in American dollars or something. Who knows? Paul knew the details. And he may well have said, look, just eat the loss because that is not worth going to court for and letting the world laugh at what is supposed to be this wonderfully loving community all drawn together. That would be less offensive, to the honor of Christ at least, than suing each other in front of unbelievers. Because the unbelievers are likely to say, yeah, sure, here all these Christians are always talking about love. Look at them. They're suing each other in civil court. How strong can this 
supposedly resurrected Jewish peasant guy Jesus really be if his followers do just what everybody else around us does? And that is, if you get shafted, you, because you love justice, you go and you try to exact what is yours from the other person through legal channels. We had a case here at Old Orchard Church in the early years. There were two members here, and they went into business with each other. My memory is a little fuzzy. I think they both actually left the congregation before their relationship with one another went south. They had a falling out over money, and each of them accused the other of not being faithful to his word. It's a terrible dilemma. Some of you, I know, have been in situations like that. But what if a so-called Christian, or even a genuine Christian, in a tremendous blind spot in his or her life, was actually trying to get a Christian business partner partner, trying to to bilk the partner out of, let's say, $50 million. What about that? Do you think about that? Money for your retirement? Money for your children? Let's say that a good part of that money, you were going to start a foundation and care for the poor and for the weak, something that was going to go across the whole globe. Can this be invoked then and say, no, you dare not go to court. Here is a professing Christian. You can't go into the civil court. Not real long ago, a friend, a Christian friend, asked me for my counsel regarding Paul's counsel right here in these verses. She worked for a Christian organization that basically shafted her in a very underhanded way and removed her from office. And they said they would give her a severance package only if she signed a non-disclosure agreement that she would never say anything about what had happened. Now, she couldn't sign it with a clear conscience, and so she refused. She got no money, but as time went by and she thought more and more about it and got counsel from other Christian leaders, she started thinking about the effect on this Christian organization that would be had if this board was not challenged. She thought about how Christ would be dishonored in that and his kingdom, because many people in lower parts of the organization and the people they served were scandalized by the tactics that were used. And so, after some Christian mediation failed, she wrestled mightily with the question of whether or not to sue in civil court as a way of trying to bring some accountability to the leadership of the organization. It was very difficult to know how to think of this. Are we all in favor of this when it's the other person who's trying to sue? And then we stand over them in self-righteousness. Don't you see what Paul's saying here? Once it's you, once somebody is coming to you with a conscience that is wrestling with this, it's much more difficult to do. I think in that situation, what happened was the mere threat of a lawsuit forced the organization to settle. 
So that's an important question. Does this directive of Paul here apply to every instance of one Christian taking another Christian to the cleaners with regard to money? Are you never supposed to take them to court? I would say that each situation has to be discerned on its own. And there may be exceptions, but surely what Paul is teaching here means that the default attitude, the default position of our thinking should be, it would be better to be wronged than to drag the church's dirty laundry before judges that have no standing in the church. That's what's meant by the unrighteous here. It's not that they're unrighteous judges That's the big distinction in in Paul's teaching, those who are holy and those who are unrighteous, those who are holy, who have been made holy by Christ, and those who have not yet come under his grace and his mercy, have not yet been justified by Christ. The default position should be that we accept that the yoke of discipleship of following Jesus means that we ought to be oriented in this direction, And that is that to suffer personally is better than for the honor of Jesus Christ to be compromised. Now, while it's true that Paul says it would be better to be ripped off than to drag Christ's name and the integrity of his church through the mud, that is not, of course, the first thing that he counsels here. In verse 5, he recommends something and he puts it in the form of a question It's a little bit of a put-down. Didn't you guys think of this first? Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So that's the first thing that Paul counsels here. You guys should have tackled this on your own as a church. It's very interesting that in the late 1560s in Geneva, Switzerland, there was great tension between the masters and the journeymen over wages in the printing industry. And, you know, you have to remember that in Calvin's Geneva, it's kind of a theocracy here, so the pastors are deciding things that now would be decided in civil court, but they took up the dispute among these believers. Some of them were journeymen. The workers, some of them were masters, the managers, the company of pastors it was called. And they decided the case, they mediated it, and interestingly enough, they came up with an agreement that was fair to both sides. In many other places, when the church got involved, it was always in the favor of the masters and the power structures. But this particular debate in 1569 was decided in a very fair and equitable way. Now, there are modern counterparts to that today, the peacemakers. Uh, There's different organizations, and they work at being faithful to this principle. They live in different parts of the country, and they will come to your church. They'll come to your Christian school. And there's a fee, of course, but what they do is they mediate as believers in some of these different conflicts. Now, sometimes they work, 
And I have heard horror stories. There are times when they also do not work. But at least, in principle, friends, the intention and the motive is good. Now here's another caveat. You cannot willy-nilly take Paul's principle here about Christians not dragging each other into court and apply it to criminal law concerning things that are far more serious than theft or fraud. One of the great scandals of our time is the covering up of sexual abuse of minors. And it's not only in the Catholic Church. A couple years ago, there was a scandal concerning an organization of Protestant churches um, in the southeast. They tried in-house fixes. And that kind of thing is not to be justified on the basis of what the Apostle Paul counsels here. The state rightly has very strict laws against that and with that kind of criminal activity. There's just too great a danger that the church is going to be interested in compromising principles of justice in order just to keep its nose clean. Paul is insistent here. He is super insistent that Christian love should be radical in response to Christians disputing with each other. It should be kept within the church. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Again in verse 4 and 5, if you have such cases, that is such small trivial cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? It's the second time he mentions it. And then notice this. I say this to your shame. The NIV actually translates this, I say this to shame you. Now think about that. The modern world way, way, way too often has a completely negative view of shame. The Swiss psychologist Paul Tournier rightly understood that shame is essential, that shame is constructive on this side of the fall. Listen to what he writes about young girls. What we said about secrets is true in the domain of sex. There's a double movement, first of retreat and then of self-abandonment, by which he means self-giving. The true meaning of modesty is to be found in this retention, this keeping of a secret which will one day be handed over to the person of our choice, that is a future spouse, with whom it will thereafter become an unbreakable bond, a commitment. Without perhaps knowing anything yet of the distant goal of her instinct, a young girl begins to feel reluctant to undress in front of her parents. The parents sometimes think that this modesty in regard to them is silly. They are making the same mistake and doing the same damage to their daughter as in violating a secret. The 
appearance of this sense of shame is, in fact, the sign of the birth of the person. And later, the supreme affirmation of the person, the great engagement of life, self-determination, will be marked by the handing over of the secret, that is, to the spouse, the gift of the self and the disappearance of shame. Now, in a different area, consider this. We have had it hammered into our head that shame is a negative thing. Some of you know the story of Abby Wambach. She's one of the best soccer players um, in the world. She just retired, I understand it. But there's a little article that says this. Shortly after Wambach retired this year, she was arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol. Wambach found it humiliating, but knows she needed to hit rock bottom. And then she said this, I was stubborn, and I didn't want to face the truth. That night, getting arrested was one of the best things that ever happened to me, because if I don't get so publicly shamed... I don't think I would wake up. It's a remarkable statement that some of the public shaming that she experienced was the very thing that woke her up. Friends, shame is a reflection of who we are as creatures made in God's image. It's related to our conscience, which is grace from God, because it helps us tremendously when we are struggling to find the right way. Of course, on this side of the fall, it is absolutely crucial. Well, I'll close with this question. I don't see how you can read this text without seeing just how amazingly radical the love is that is supposed to characterize the kingdom of of God. But if you ask the question, why is love supposed to be so radical to the point where Paul even says, I'm saying this because you all at Corinth ought to be ashamed of what is happening there. Why? I'll just suggest the answer. It's right there in the text. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know, when Paul says in his letters, don't you know that, he's alluding to things he knows that he has taught them or that they have been taught by other Christian leaders. In other words, haven't you been taught that the saints, that Christians, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Don't you know, because you've been taught, that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this 
life. Friends, love in the kingdom is to be radical because the kingdom is radical. Who knows what this means? That we are to judge angels. That we are to judge the world under Christ and alongside of him and with him. It's unbelievably fantastic. And Paul is saying, men and women, boys and girls in the church in Corinth, in the church in St. Louis, live backwards. Live from where you will be one day. Pull some of that back into the present. Because it's too glorious to ponder. It's too radical. It's too amazing. So let some of that radical nature, that character, be manifest even now in the present. Tremendous challenge for us. Tremendous challenge. We who are so influenced by the seep of the self-centeredness that goes on around us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we come to your table, humble us. How thankful we are that when it is right for one another to confront us and to say that we ought to be ashamed of ourselves, that that's not the end. Paul always turns his people back to the cross, to the rich and wonderful forgiveness there and for the fresh start that it is always possible to make because of the good news of grace. Oh Lord, as we come to that good news now at this table, remind us of the tremendous cost that you paid, Lord Jesus. You who spoke the universe into existence. Give us grace, we pray. 